Well, we are so glad to have you with us today at Reston Bible Church. You know, one of the things I love doing uh, right before I step up here is to stand down front. And when the music pulls back a little bit to hear you all singing, it is so, you guys are just singing out. And I love that. It's awesome to hear you all praising God together. So we are gathering together today to, as we kick off what we call Holy Week, we're welcoming you here today. And those who are online, we're glad to have you with us as well. From this day, Palm Sunday, through Easter Sunday is one of the most significant weeks of all of human history and it is the most documented event, the most documented week in all of the Gospels. If you go to any of the Gospels, what happened in these seven days, eight days, is uh, takes up the bulk of, of most of the Gospels. A really good percentage of every Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is dedicated to this week. And we have several things for you as we kick off the week. On our website, Uh, We have something called the shadow of the cross, and it's a bit of a devotional. It has some scriptures and some questions. You can scan the QR code on the screen right now, or you can go to restinbible.org slash Easter, uh, where you can have that downloaded. The other thing that you can download is something called Easter, walking with Jesus. And what we've done is we've taken a map of Jerusalem and the surrounding region and we have kind of posted where was Jesus in these, in the, on Monday and on Tuesday and what was he doing in all these different scriptures. And so you can grab one of these on your way out uh, or you can, again, download that off of our website at that same web address. What's happening today, what we're discussing today, the triumphal entry of Jesus is found in all four Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 21, with a few different kind of, we're going to accentuate some of it by talking about a couple of different passages in some of the other Gospels who share some some information uh, that isn't specifically in Matthew. Jesus has been ministering for a little over three years at this point. A lot of that in kind of contention with the religious establishment of the day. The common people were like, they're all in, they're following him. And you know, Jesus is doing all these cool things. He's feeding them. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? He's healing them. They're like, yeah, this guy's awesome. And so they're really, really excited about that. And today we'll see that excitement in fever pitch. But then you understand as well that by the end of the week, Jesus has failed to meet their expectations. And the same people that we're going to look at today who are crying Hosanna are the exact same people who then cry crucify him. And we'll get to that in just a moment, understand why it is that that happened. I really want to encourage you as well, as we're walking through this week, to consider coming back on Thursday night. Uh, Jews for Jesus with David Brickner uh, is going to be here, kind of walking us through the Passover. Now, if you've done Passover with friends, you know that in the middle of Passover, you stop and have a meal and then continue with the Passover Seder. We're not doing that. It's just kind of come in the same theater style that we're in today. And he's going to talk Uh, about Passover and where we find Jesus in it, it's going to be a powerful time to see where Jesus has been in the Passover all along, all along. And then Friday night, we're going to be celebrating a Good Friday. It's actually more of a commemoration rather than a celebration. It's going to be a little bit more of a somber tone on purpose to to commemorate the crucifixion. Those two, Thursday and Friday, will both be at 7 o'clock. The Good Friday service will be a bit interactive. Really encourage you to come and check that out. And then, of course, joining us on Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection. For today, Matthew chapter 21, we're going to talk about Jesus as he enters into 
Jerusalem and the significance of the various pieces of the story that we are about to read. Here we go. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Now let's pause there right away. Let's show you a map and talk about where Jesus was and where he was going. If you look to the right, there's Bethany. That's where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's where he came on his way to celebrate Passover this very week. He stopped and stayed there first. He's coming up the east side of the Mount of Olives, past Bethphage. We'll get to that in a moment. Crosses over the top of the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is. You can, it's still there today. You can still see the Temple Mount from the Garden of Gethsemane. And I, I hope you'll join me uh, next October, not this October, but October 2023 when we go back. Just a cheap advertisement there, I apologize. And um, he crosses over the Kidron Valley and that, that Temple Mount, that big rectangle right there in the, the top left is where the Temple was. And of course, then Jerusalem, the, the surrounding uh, region there to the, with the, oriented toward the Temple Mount. So that's where Jesus went. And we'll hear more about each of these towns as we walk through our time together today. All right, back to our text. Then Jesus said to two sent two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. We believe that's Bethphage. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, both Mark and Luke indicate that the colt upon which Jesus was about to ride had never been written before, written before, a detail that Matthew doesn't include. If you know anything about riding beasts of burden, horses or donkeys, they're not crazy about it the first time, right? So this is just fulfilling the prophecy. We'll get to that in a moment. And Jesus's deity, he was able to calm this animal and off they went. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, John's account tells us that they were palm branches, these particular branches, which is significant. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. And the crowds then went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, another detail that John tells us is that many of the people in the crowd that day were also there back in the day when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So they're kind of continuing like, okay, this is the guy. We are going to follow him. And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, there is a critical detail that Luke includes. We'll jump there for just a moment. In Luke chapter 19, verses 34 and 35, he adds this. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, watching all of this take place, says, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is saying, you cannot stop what is about to happen. I could silence the crowd. 
I'm not going to, but I could. But even if I did, the very stones would cry out about the declaration that's occurring in this passage right here. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that we can learn from it. Father, I pray that you would bless us today as we kick off the most significant week in church history. And I pray, Father, that for each of us, no matter what we're doing, maybe some on spring break this week and headed out of town, okay, that's fine, but that we would take some time to read these scriptures and walk through the week with what Jesus was doing, participate in Thursday night, the Passover Seder, which is what Jesus did and established a new covenant in his blood. Celebrate Good Friday together as we consider the crucifixion and then gather together again one week from today for the capstone moment of all of human history, which was Jesus being raised from the dead. Be with us now as we look into your word, we pray in your great name, amen. There are five things that we wanna notice out of this passage. And then I wanna leave you with two thoughts at the end of that. What does this mean for us today? What difference does it make that we have read through this passage today? And I understand, and, and someone from the previous service said, you know, I never looked deeply at these things. We read these stories, and, but the, the, the distinctive meanings of these elements is something that I've never really thought through. So thank you for walking through that today. And that's my hope, because as we read the scripture, we go, yeah, Jesus is right on the donkey, and Hosanna in the highest, and you know, all that kind of stuff. But what is the meaning of all of that? Why does it matter? So the first thing we need to see from this passage today is that this event Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, was foretold by a prophet in the Old Testament. It says this, in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Salvation is he, is with this Messiah. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Zechariah was a prominent member of a priestly family who had returned to the land after the Babylonian exile. He came back under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 538 BC. He began his ministry, his preaching ministry as a prophet about 520 BC, 500 years before this event took place. 500 years, this prophecy was just being fulfilled. In our world today, in the church today, we look to the future. We try to discern what's coming. We talk about, are we in the end times? What are the clues? What are the biblical references? Are the things that we see in the Bible, are they coming to pass today? Well, you know, and, and we have been doing this for generations. If you knew Christ many years ago, you remember in the late 70s, it was Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, right? I see a lot of nods out there. And then it became Tim LaHaye and Left Behind and all these different things. I came to faith after watching a movie called A Thief in the Night, where it depicted the rapture, the taking of the church. And I'm sitting there going, oh, and I ran down front to accept Jesus because I believed in him, not just because I was freaked out by the movie, although I was that. I was freaked out by the movie. And we're always trying to say, look at the scriptures and see where it's going. We can tell the signs of the times as things are unfolding. Are we moving into the end times? Yes, we are. How deeply? I don't know. Will Jesus come back in our lifetime? I don't know. 
Is it possible? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. First century Jews have been reading the signs of the times for generations. They knew these scriptures. They knew Zechariah 9.9. Like many of us know the passages in 1 Thessalonians 4 or Revelation this or whatever it happens to be today. And when Jesus, after all of his miracles and all the different things that he had done, when he got on a donkey... There is no, nothing in recorded, recorded in scripture that Jesus ever rode anywhere. He walked everywhere. Now, is it possible that he rode somewhere? Well, sure, that's possible. It's not recorded anywhere. This is the only recorded incident of Jesus riding anywhere. And it was a donkey. They had camels, they had horses, they had all kinds of things you could ride. But he was riding a donkey. And it was like, ha ha! This is a sign. And indeed, it was. So that's the event foretold, number one. Number two is this issue of riding on a donkey. Verse five, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And to you and to me, the image of a donkey doesn't mean much at all. It may have been something that your children rode at a, at a little carnival somewhere, you know, kind of around in a circle. Uh, but beyond that, it doesn't mean much to us. The truth of the matter is that riding a donkey is very, very significant. You see, conquering kings came into town with, on those who they had conquered riding on a horse. A conquering king rides horses. A peaceful king, but a king nonetheless rides on a donkey. 1 Kings 1, verse 33. It says, And the king said to them, this is David speaking, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on his own mule or a donkey and bring him down to Gihon. David was very clear. It was peacetime. He was passing the mantle of the responsibility of the kingdom. He was dubbing his son Solomon as the king. And one of the primary mechanisms for doing that was putting his son on his donkey and riding him through town. Zechariah 9.10, which follows Zechariah 9.9, tells us this about the Messiah riding a donkey. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. He, his rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. People understood. That the Messiah was to come. They should have understood. That he would be a king of peace. Not a king of war. But they didn't. And we're going to get to that. In just a moment. Number one, the event was foretold in Zechariah 9 9. Number two, Jesus came in riding on a donkey, which was a clear sign of his messianic title. William Lane Craig, a noted a politician, apologist, excuse me, uh, says this about what happens next. He says, In order to appreciate what happens next, you need to understand something of the Jewish feelings toward Rome. In 63 BC, legions under Pompey had put an end to an independent Jewish state. Although Israel had returned from exile 
in Babylon hundreds of years earlier, the golden age predicted by the prophets had not yet materialized. Instead, Israel labored under the oppressive military dictatorship of a pagan nation. The Jews chafed under the yoke of Roman rule. Within 35 years of the time of Christ, Jews would be in full-scale rebellion against Rome, finally resulting in the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There were four primary Jewish sects or groups at this time in history. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We hear a lot about them. They were the Jewish ruling council. And most of the time when we hear about Jewish ruling leaders in the Gospels, they're Sadducees or Pharisees. Another group was called the Essenes. They were the scribes. They were more monk-like. They were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls that many of us have heard about. The fourth group are the Zealots. They were the Jewish nationalists, the true first Zionists, who wanted to overthrow Rome. And there was an undercurrent of overthrow since 63 BC. And here we are in 33 AD, and they are done. They are ready for this to be over. And when they're the Messiah that they're waiting for in their own hearts and minds is one who is going to relieve them of the oppression of Rome. Number three, not only were the events foretold, came in riding on a donkey. Here's number three and why this was so important. He was honored with cloaks and palm branches in the roadway. You say, okay, so they laid their cloaks down. That's a little weird. I don't want mine to get dirty, but okay, we'll, we'll put it there. And palm branches, okay, that's fine. Waving those in the air, but what does that mean? Matthew 21, 8 says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road as well. Others were waving them in the air. Now, in the Old Testament, when you read through the book of the books of First and Second Kings, you see a lot of jockeying for position. You see uh, overthrows. You see people assassinated. You see new people coming into power. This guy ruled for eight days. This guy ruled for eight years. Whatever it happens to be, but there's this verse tucked away in Second Kings nine, and it says this: Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Putting clothing along the roadway was a clear indication of kingship. It was indication of kingship. Now you and I understand the idea of putting something on the roadway for people who are to be honored. For us, we call it rolling out the red carpet. Right? People of significance walk on the red carpet. You, you watch your different award shows and they, they stepped out onto the red carpet. And there's people around who should not be walking on the red carpet. Study of history tells us that the first known display of rolling out the red carpet was in a Greek play called Agamemnon in 458 B.C. This is a long history of laying things in the roadway. Now, I would think that in Jerusalem, uh, on the day of the triumphal entry, they didn't have a red carpet rolled up and ready to go. 
And so they did what they often did in the Old Testament, which was to lay their garments in the road. The same thing, a declaration of importance and honor. President James Monroe walked the red carpet in 1821 in South Carolina. In the early 1900s, red carpets were rolled out by the newly uh, developing railroad system to honor their most important guests. They rolled, they put their garments on the ground and it was a clear indication. It was, yes, the Messiah is here. We're finally gonna be done with Rome. He's gonna come in, this man who has done all these amazing things and he is going to rescue us and we're gonna put our coats in the road for him. Others, they wave palm branches in the air. This is very, very important. Palm branches have a long history of importance and significance in the Jewish world. Leviticus 23 tells us about the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Sukkot. I'm sorry, the Feast of Booze. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. The significance of the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, where they live in a booth for seven days, and they celebrate and they thank God for the harvest is from the beginning of human history, of Jewish history, when they came into the land. And God was setting up their systems of religious festivals and so forth. It was accentuated by the waving of a palm branch. Celebration. You know, at the conclusion of time, we're all going to be waving palm branches. Book of Revelation, chapter 7. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the people of God were challenged to wave palm branches at the beginning of the establishment of the Jewish state all the way through the return of Jesus. And when they did it at this moment, in the triumphal entry of Jesus, they were declaring their belief that he was their king and that he was going to save them. Event foretold, Zechariah 9.9 came in riding on a donkey, a very, very important sign, honored with cloaks on the roadway and palm branches being waved. A very, very sign, Every important sign. Everyone knew what it meant. Number four, the crowd was yelling, Hosanna to the son of David. Verse nine, and the crowds then went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now the word Hosanna is in the imperative. And it means save now. Save now, son of David. The phrase son of David is a messianic title. Jesus was in the line of David. But everyone knew that it was the Messiah who was going to carry the title 
son of David. Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That word, the word for save us in this passage is Hosanna. Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The exact phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were quoting Psalm 118 as they waved their palm branches, as they declared, Hosanna, save us right now, O Messiah, a.k.a. Son of David. Remember when Jesus was moving around in his various ministry during three years, he came upon a man named Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And the one person who didn't rebuke him was Jesus. Jesus received even then the title Son of David from blind Bartimaeus. And he received it this day as he rode into Jerusalem. Event foretold, Zechariah 9.9. Riding on a donkey, a critical clue that he was indeed the Messiah. Honored with cloaks in the road and palm branches waving in the air. The cry of Hosanna, son of David. Save us now, O Messiah. Fifth and finally for today came the rebuke of the religious leaders. Oh, there was a tension in the air this day. It was Passover. It was the most significant celebration in the Jewish year. Something that had been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it still goes on today. It is the longest standing religious celebration in recorded human history. It was the first celebration that the Jews took on before they left the land of Egypt. All the other feasts and celebrations were established once they got into the land. And God was establishing their culture. And here on this most important celebration, Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem declaring in every way that he was the Messiah, that he was their Passover celebrant, which is the Messiah. Luke 19 says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. (laughs) Saying, these people are committing blasphemy. Right now, by declaring that you are the Messiah, you need to rebuke them. You need to stop them. And he's like, I will not. But even if I did, all these stones, they would cry out because you cannot stop the ball that is beginning to roll this very day. This very day. So how did we get from a crowd declaring Hosanna to the son of David on Sunday to those very same people crying crucify him 
on Friday. How did we get there? You see, if you read the books of Matthew and Luke and the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem and what happens next, you'll discover that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the next paragraph, the next section, is Jesus going into the temple and clearing the temple. He turns over the tables of the money changers and he chases out all the animals that they're selling uh, for sacrifices and so forth. But there's a very, very important passage in the book of Mark that gives us more clarity as to what was happening, how it happened, and why the crowd began to sour from Hosanna in the highest to the son of David to crucify him just a few short days later. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. And it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? Like, what is this? Jesus rides into Jerusalem. There's all this fanfare. The whole town is in an uproar. People are waving and doing all the things that they should be doing for the Messiah. He goes into the temple. He looks at his watch and he says, my, look at the time. And he heads off to Bethany to get some shut-eye for the night. What? I mean, you have the momentum. Take it to the, take it to its conclusion. Bring the heat. And he goes to bed. And he comes back the next day. If you, if you look at our program here, the cleansing of the temple was on Monday. Things had settled. The crowd had dispersed. People go back to work. They're doing whatever it is that they're going to do. Jesus goes into the temple. Yeah, he flips it all over. Like he, he, he causes a scene. But all of Jerusalem isn't there to see it. And as the week presses on, Jesus fails to meet the expectation of the crowd that had declared him to be the Messiah, but in their minds, he sure didn't act like one. Because what they thought he was going to do was come and conquer Rome. And by Friday, Jesus was hanging on a cross. He had offered himself, himself to them as their Messiah. He truly, truly did. I remember in Bible college talking about the, the bona fide offer of the kingdom. Jesus did offer them himself as Messiah and the kingdom. They just didn't receive him the way he was offering himself. But ultimately, that was part of God's plan. Because in order to truly be the Messiah that God had in his plan that they didn't understand was that he would ultimately go to the cross. And then, after he had paid for the sins of the world, he would then conquer death by rising from the dead. No one saw that coming. This is a critical foundational event to what's coming this week. Jesus came in, as foretold in Zechariah 9, riding on a donkey, honored with cloaks and palm branches, 
to the cries of Hosanna, son of David, and with the disdain of the religious establishment of the day. And that was a critical starting point for everything that we're going to see this week. It was after this event, during the coming week, where they came to test Jesus, if you remember. And they asked him if they should pay taxes to Caesar. And they pulled out a denarius and he said, whose image is on that? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, remember what he said? He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God. And that's it. What you're telling us that we should pay taxes? Please don't read by that passage too quickly. That was a clear declaration that he wasn't coming to conquer Rome as the Messiah. He had different things in mind. Another piece in the puzzle of why Friday came and the cries of crucify him because through it all, Jesus consistently failed to meet their expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. So I told you we're going to have five points today and then two thoughts as we wrap up. The question then becomes, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? And I have two things. One is that Jesus is indeed the king. He is the king. He was the king before all time. He was the king when he rode into Jerusalem. He was the king hanging from the cross and he was the king who rose from the dead. But there's a second thing that we need to understand about this passage that applies to us today. And it's that Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations, but his plan is always better. Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations, but his plan is always better. You see, we live in this tension, do we not? Where Jesus is the king. We believe that if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that. You acknowledge that at some point in your life and you're seeking to live in compliance with the reality of that. But yet we live in this difficult tension in the reality that we don't always get Jesus. We don't always get what he's about. We have expectations. And some of us here today as followers of Jesus are struggling with the fact that we've had expectations about what he would do or what he wouldn't do, what he should do, what we'd like for him to do. And that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening right now. And the way of Jesus, whatever that way is, is always better. It's always better. (laughs) My son had his wisdom teeth out two weeks ago. And he's not recovering so well. Um, he's gotten a little infection in there. He's doing all the rinsing. You, you know, if you've had your wisdom teeth, you know how this goes with a little syringe, you know, shooting water in there and stuff's flying everywhere and just trying to keep it clean. And even sometimes your best efforts don't work. I had him in the dentist's office three times this week to open it up back up and put you, I won't gross you out with what happened and all that. And he's sitting in the chair the third time this week, which was Thursday. And uh, I said, how bad's the pain? He goes, Dad, it's a 10 out of 10. They need to do something. And then he starts talking to me about the scriptures, about how God allows 
challenges in our lives to make us who he wants him to be, who he wants us to be. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, my hope and expectation was these teeth would come out and it would be smooth sailing. Rinse, do what you're supposed to do, it'll be good. That's not what's happening right now. It's not the end of the world. He's going to get through it. It's short-lived. I understand that. Some of the problems that you're facing and that you're hoping for God to make changes on and uh, things that you're expecting him to do uh, may be much more significant than that. But I got to tell you, in the world of a 17-year-old, this is pretty big right now. Some of us here today may not have a relationship with Jesus. You may be exploring the things of Christ You may be trying to figure it out. You have some questions. And one of the great roadblocks is that your perspective of what God is supposed to do with people who follow him, well, that's not what's happening. Maybe you know a follower of Jesus and you're watching their life and their life has been hard and difficult for all their Jesus following has done for them. And what's blocking your willingness to embrace Jesus as Savior is a perspective about what's supposed to happen that's not. You know, this is a universal human situation. Our head elder on Thursday night in our our elder meeting started reading from the book of Habakkuk. You're kind of one of these obscure Old Testament books that most people don't read. It's about three chapters long. You're like, got it done in one sitting and you're moving on and off you go. You know what Habakkuk's primary cry was? God, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing something different? This is what we need from you. And you know what happened after Habakkuk was crying out to God for God to do something different? They got carted off into captivity. (laughs) That's not what anybody had in mind that God was going to do. And one of the greatest challenges for all of us, believer and Seeker alike is trying to figure out what God's doing and how to handle it when he doesn't do what we expect him to do. And the greatest thing that we have is the one expectation is that he loves us and he'll never forsake us. If we give him our lives, he says, I will always be with you. We have a relationship with him from now through eternity. And some days that's as good as it gets. That's all we got and it's all we need. And today, this Palm Sunday, it's my hope that if you are a follower of Christ, you would renew today and through this week your personal declaration that Jesus is the King. And that you would engage in all the things we have, opportunities we have for you this week, and that you would show up with us again next Sunday as we declare in bold form that Jesus is the resurrected King who paid for sin and conquered death. Number two, that if you are a follower of Jesus here today, that you would rest in Jesus' plan even when he doesn't meet your expectations for what that ought to be. Jesus is way bigger than my capacity to understand this day or the next day or any day at all. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ here today, I want to invite you to consider through this week what it means to declare Jesus as your king to recognize the sinfulness of all of us and the need for a savior, the need for why, why someone had to come at all to die in our place. We're going to talk more about that on Friday. Come and join us. 
And that when God doesn't meet your expectations, that that is a universal human experience and that your willingness to struggle through it and embrace Jesus who always knows what's best, even when it doesn't look like it to us, is worth following, is worth following. One of the opportunities that we have for you, if you are a person who's trying to sort through what it means to follow Jesus, or perhaps years ago you made a commitment to Christ, and a circuitous journey through life, if you will, has taken you away, and you're trying to figure out if you can come back or if you want to come back, we have an opportunity for you, no matter where you are in that journey. It's called Starting Point. Starting Point isn't a class. There's no teacher. There are facilitators there. It's a group. And it's an opportunity to come and ask questions and struggle through what does the Bible say and who Jesus is. And if, if you've walked through life and you've had struggles because you want to push Jesus away because of maybe a bad church experience or you know, you've been exposed to a, a form of Christianity that you're like, ah, I can't do that. Perhaps maybe you've never actually encountered Jesus for who he really is and who he says he is. Not through a poor reflection of someone who says that they know him. Really want to encourage you to consider it. Again, a group to ask questions. It's a safe place. If if you're in one of those struggling moments, it's hard to find environments to ask questions in a way that feels safe to you. There's a table in the lobby with a starting point banner out there. Someone will be there after our service to answer any questions that you have. The next starting point begins on April 24th, two weeks from today. We would love for you to be part of that group to struggle through together what it means for Jesus to be king and the reality that there's so much in life that we don't understand and that even when Jesus fails to meet our expectations, his way is always best and he's worth following. Jesus had rode into Jerusalem and he declared through all of these signs that he was the Messiah. This week, Jesus does a variety of things. Encourage you to read on through the way, keeping this passage in mind. As the week unfolds, as you see the tide turn, come be with us on Thursday night to see where Jesus fits into the Passover. Friday night, as we commemorate the crucifixion and then join us back here on Sunday as we celebrate the risen Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that your word, as we study it, gives us all we need to understand you, to understand life, to understand ourselves and where we fit into life in the picture. Father, help us. Help us as we seek to live a life that declares that you are king. Help us as we struggle through the reality that there's a lot about life where you don't meet the things, the expectations that we've had for what we were hoping you would do. God, thank you that you love us and that the one thing that we know is that you died for us on the cross, that we have eternal life, we have a relationship with you and that you give us the power of your Holy Spirit to live and to navigate this world in a way that honors and glorifies you. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.